Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We're in a series called For the Sake of the World, and what we're after, the vision behind this series, is not like getting more programmatic evangelism into like the lifeblood of the church. That's not what we're about. Events uh, equal uh, programs, and we're more about a way of life here. We heard last week just how the early Christians experienced uh, evangelism was drastically different than the way that we experience evangelism in the West today. Um, They simply found uh, a treasure that was of infinite worth and couldn't help but share it with others. And so I I said to myself, and and I've been praying like, man, wouldn't that be wonderful if That's who Vineyard Cleveland was. Just a group of people who had found eternal treasure and couldn't help but share it with others in the world. Uh, We've been getting after the the gospel from a different uh, perspective. We're asking questions of the gospel like who, what, where, when, and how. And last Sunday we talked about who. And if you were here last Sunday, you remember we said Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is about a person, and his name is Jesus. And so this morning, we view as like a two-part sort of mini-series within the context of the larger series. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about being saved from. We're going to ask the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And the two parts that we're entering into this morning is like saved from, and then next week is like saved to, or you could see it as like Good Friday and Easter, death and resurrection, whatever you want to call it, we're going to get after defining the gospel this morning. If we want to share good news with others in the world for the sake of the world, we need to first understand, well, what is the good news that we're sharing? Wouldn't you agree? Oh, a a few of you. Okay, great. Awesome. (laughs) Great. Okay, so although... Today is about like being saved from. Please don't hear like hellfire and brimstone. That's not what today is about. Uh, And for those of you who know my track record, you know that that is not a regular or any occurrence here at Vineyard Cleveland. I'm not about preaching hellfire and brimstone, but there's a very real element to uh, preaching the good news in its entirety. And a lot of times preachers stop at what we're being saved to, but here's the goodness this morning, that is that if we don't preach what we're being saved from, the weight of what we're being saved to doesn't equal out. It doesn't match up. And so this morning we will be uh, talking about wrath and sin and death and animal sacrifice and blood and stuff like that. But please don't hear hellfire and brimstone. We're going to see that it can be filled with, we can be filled with joy on the other side. Being saved from is less like uh, this thing of hellfire and brimstone and more one half of 
uh, of the side of two coins. And so it doesn't carry as much weight when we first don't understand what we're being saved from. It's, you know, it's, it's basically like saying without good news, it's all bad news. It's all bad news without the good news. Paul puts it this way. So this morning's going to be a straight preach. Are you okay with that? Sometimes I give like clever like analogies and illustrations and I'm a storyteller, I like storytelling. This morning is going to be a straight preach. We good with that? Okay, bringing it. Here we go. All right. Paul says in Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all jacked up. We're messed up in some way or another. And then save verse 24 for the end here, but we're, he says that we're all justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Tuck that one away in your memory for later in the message. But here's, here's brass tacks this morning. That apart from Jesus, we were God's enemies. We've fallen short, we read in the New Testament from Paul. We also read that we were God's enemies. He writes to the church at Ephesus, as for you, and to the church at Cleveland, Ohio, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You say, that doesn't sound a whole lot like good news. Does it? (laughs) To me, it it doesn't. That seems like pretty bad news that I was deserving of wrath. What does that mean? How does that make me feel when I read Paul's encouragement to the church at Ephesus. He's saying essentially like you weren't born pretty decent people and then God came along and added Jesus to the mix to like enhance your life. But strangely that's the message that we hear in a lot of different churches today. That you add Jesus to the goodness that you already bring to the table. What I read in the New Testament and what you should read in your Bible is that we weren't pretty decent people before the gift of Jesus. By our own hands, we're like a mess. We put our hands to things and we're a mess. And the truth is that even the best deeds that you or I could do, the best deeds are rubbish before the throne of a perfect and holy God. He's that holy. He's that perfect. He's that good. And sometimes we forget what exactly it costs for God Almighty to come down and be with men and women. We forget what it costs for him to come and to dwell with us. It's a costly grace, some theologians have called it. You and I were born with a desperate need for salvation. We need to be saved by someone or something bigger, better than ourselves. We can't do it on our own. And that is, by tangent, the story of the whole Old Testament. It's men and women all the way back to the garden trying to be like God by their own strength and by their own hand. And God 
keep, keeps his commitment and covenant no matter how far Israel strays from him and says, no, no, son, no, daughter, not like that, not your way, but I will provide a way for you outside of condemnation, outside of the shame, to be like Christ. I will provide a way someday. Yeah, the New Testament says we're dead in our sin. We're enemies. We're actually opposing. Or as my son, who's in Gen Z, likes to say, you're an op. Have you heard this? You're an op. You're the opposite. We are the opposition to God. We're an op. You're, you are an op to God. You are the opposition. But here's where we make the turn. In Romans 3, 24, it says we're justified freely. Paul writes one verse after he says that we're deserving of wrath, the one that we just read in Ephesians. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you were saved. God is so holy. He's so very good that he can't stand evil. He's like so angry with evil. Not angry in the way that like humans are angry. I think we hear about the wrath of God, the anger of God, and we think, oh, that's like the way that my dad was when he abused me, when he hit me. And that's really just not what Paul is after here. It's really just not. It's not like that. It's that he is so good that he can't, he's so perfect, he's so righteous, he's so holy that he can't occupy the same space as the antithesis of those things. And so for our sakes, for the sake of the world, and out of his deep compassion and deep love for men and women, he provides a way for us to not be those things. Can we see that this morning? Ever since the garden, he's been working. We just sang it. He's never stopping his work. This is the turn today. That some of you this morning will see for the first time what it took, what it cost to bring you back into relationship with God. Grace is costly. It costs a whole lot to raise the dead to life. It costs a whole lot to make dead things alive. In order that God might dwell with men and women, it meant that there needed to be a sacrifice. There needed to be a sacrifice. And folks, you can't make this stuff up. When we planned, we had no idea. When we planned this sermon series, this, is, this was just the goodness of God. And this is how I know that this message is for you this morning, because there is no talk of this in the planning series. There is no talk of this, oh, maybe we could line it up so it would be all clever and cool. Tomorrow is the high holy day of the Jewish people. It's called Yom Kippur. And this morning is all about atonement. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement in the Jewish faith. And to spare you, like, the length of everything that means. In your own reading, take a minute on your own at home and read through Leviticus 16, 1 through 34. 
What was Yom Kippur all about? It had everything to do with animal sacrifices and the forgiveness of sins and atonement for the Jewish nation, atonement for Jewish people, atonement for Jewish families. What is it all about? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, it was the only day in the Jewish calendar that the Jewish high priest starting with Aaron, could pronounce and say out loud the divine name of Yahweh. On one day a year, he could do this. One person, and this was it. The day of atonement, at one mint. It was the one day a year that the high priest could enter to the most holy place in the temple and make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the Jewish nation's sins. It was the one day a year that that priest could uh, come into contact and experience Yahweh, the living God, and the most holy of holies. And the reason that the priest was to go into the holy of holies was for the forgiveness of sins. That's a great reason, isn't it? And so there are different um, rituals that the Jewish people celebrate on Yom Kippur. One of them is a fast. There's a, a fast that happens. It's a, it's a Shabbat. It's a, it's a special Sabbath. It's the most special Sabbath. Jews around the world will celebrate Yom Kippur this year, but they'll celebrate it a little bit differently than the way that they celebrated it back in Jesus' time, and that's because we know on the other side of the cross, because of Jesus... But a lot of sacrifice would happen on this day. Animal sacrifice is something that we're not too comfortable or familiar with, but it's something that would have been super comfortable and super familiar to Jews throughout the ages. There were a couple of different rituals that centered around animal sacrifice. You see the word there for sacrifice is korban. There's a couple of other Hebrew words for sacrifice, but this would have been the word that they would use when it comes to Leviticus 16 and the celebration of Yom Kippur. Korban means to make an offering that is pleasing to sacrifice. And so the Jews, what they would do, the priests would take two goats, you would read in Leviticus. In fact, let's read that. Leviticus 16, 8 through 10. On Yom Kippur, the highest holy day of the year, which is tomorrow. That's the, do you see it? That's why this message is for you this morning. We, we did not plan that. Yom Kippur is tomorrow, the holiest day in the Jewish faith. God really wants you all to hear this. That's the translation there. God wants you to hear about this. In Leviticus 16, 8 through 10, here it is. Aaron shall cast lots, he'll roll the die, for two goats. One lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord, to make atonement upon it, and to let it go as the scapegoat, into the wilderness. That word, scapegoat. Okay, what's going on? What in the world is going on here? Okay, that word scapegoat we just saw is kafar. And what that means is to cover. 
And so what's going on here is Aaron is casting lots. These two goats are sitting there like, please don't let it be me. Please don't let it be me. And they're looking up with their beady eyes. And Aaron says, let's roll the dice. You are for the Lord and you are the scapegoat. So he's choosing between the two. And the one is burnt by fire as an offering. And the aroma goes up and satisfies the Lord. The other is the kafar. And what Aaron would do with bloody hands after just slaughtering the one that is to be burned as an offering to God, with bloody hands, would take his hands and place the sin of the nation and the sin of Jewish families upon the goat that was chosen as kafar. He'd place his hands on it, and there the sin of the nation would be placed upon the goat. And then he'd say, giddy up. And send it to the wilderness. Now what often happened is that goat didn't get too far. It would be pushed off a cliff. There was a red cord tied around its horns. The Talmud, which is a book of sacred writings, rabbinical writings. It's not holy writ, so to speak, like the Torah is, but it's sacred enough. It said that all through Yom Kippur, since its initiation, that that red cord that was tied around the goat's horns, at when the goat, the scapegoat, the kafar, would be sent into the wilderness, that that red cord would turn white. Though your, remember Isaiah? Though your sin is like scarlet, they will be washed white as snow. And the miracle of the red cord was highly recorded in the Talmud. Strangely enough, the Talmud records that round about 30 AD, that red cord mysteriously stopped turning white. Why? Why? Jesus is the scapegoat. In Isaiah 53, 6, we read, All we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, catch it, catch this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On to Jesus, every single sin. So Jesus becomes the scapegoat to remove sin once and for all. He's Messiah. He offers a better sacrifice. And now you and I, even outside of the Jewish faith, can receive forgiveness of our sins and be debt free because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And check this out. Year after year, decade after decade, Century after century, the Day of Atonement continues. Goat after goat after goat after goat, it continues. But check the language out in Leviticus. Even in the definition of what the scapegoat is, it can only cover the sin of the people. It covers the sin of the people. By Aaron, the high priest laying his hands on the goat, covers the sin of the people. You say, yeah, I get it. You don't need to say it anymore. But do you realize what that means? That the ritual must continue year after year because it only covers the sin of the people. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is so much better than the scapegoat 
and the atonement of sin for the Jewish nation that He not only covers every sin, but He removes every sin. And He doesn't just cover every sin ever committed and doesn't just remove every sin ever committed. We're told, in fact, that He adds a deposit of righteousness into your account. That's how complete the forgiveness of sin is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's good news. Oh my gosh, wake up! The complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ not only covers, not only removes, but adds a credit of righteousness to your account so that when you are across the table of mediation with the Father, He doesn't even see you anymore. He sees Jesus. 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 This gets me fired up. I'm so sorry, you guys. It means that the only thing that could erase the insurmountable debt of sin that you and I have racked up is the death of Jesus on the cross. And a lot of times as Americans, we like to think, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I care about my kids. I want my kids to do well. I'm nice to them, really nice to them once a year when I give them gifts at Christmas. I, I, I try not to swear and cuss. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. And Christ says at the cross, lay your deadly good works down because even those aren't getting you in. The only thing that gets you in is the blood of Jesus at the cross. It's a better sacrifice. He's been scapegoated for us. He's been scapegoated for us, for you, and for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, blameless in all of his ways, to be sin for us. What? To be sin for us. That Jesus became sin for us. All of the sin on Him. That we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that we can be saved from sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. There it is. What else does it mean? It means it took the blood. It took the, sac- the sacrifice and it took the blood. In Leviticus, a chapter after uh, Yom Kippur, in Leviticus 17, we read that for the life of the flesh is in the, bud, in the blood. Just a general statement here. The life of flesh, men and women, your, your life is not in your skin, it's in your blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Jews understood that Yahweh required blood for the forgiveness of sin. 
Now, this wasn't unique to the Jewish people. There were a lot of different ancient religions that were practicing animal sacrifice and that um, quite often would uh, do rituals that would, they would think would cleanse them from sin and all of that's not unique. But the Jews understood that Yahweh required blood, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because there's life in the blood. It's alive. There can be no forgiveness, the Jews understood, without it. And the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament were central to the redemption process. And here we hear John the Baptist's words echoing in our ears. Long before Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus first starts in ministry and John looks at his cousin and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that crazy? Have you ever said that about your cousin? That would be a strange thing. <laughs> Behold, look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. Walking down to the river long before he went to the cross. Behold, prophetically, did he even know what he was saying? Did he even realize the weight of that? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew, maybe he didn't, prophetically, in that moment that there needed to be shed blood for the forgiveness of the world's sins. And he says, he's your man, Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the, uh, takes away the sin of the world. So blood speaks. That's what we read in Leviticus is that blood is alive. Blood speaks. Did you know that blood speaks? Blood testifies. You guys might be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, the old Sunday school tale of old. If you're not, the story of Cain and Abel goes a little something like this, is that there were two brothers, and they were required to make korban, to make a sacrifice. This is the first instance of animal sacrifice that we see in the scriptures, kinda. It happens in Genesis 4. How did Adam and Eve get clothed by the animal skins? We don't know. Possibly korban, but it doesn't say. It doesn't really say. Here, it's really clear there's an animal sacrifice made. So Yahweh comes to the brothers, Cain and Abel, and he says, make an offering pleasing to the Lord. So Cain, those of you who are familiar with the story know, Cain goes, he's a farmer, he takes all of it, well, maybe, he takes all of his stuff, his, his crops and the best of his crops, and he, he gives them to the Lord as an offering. Abel deals in agriculture, and Abel takes the first fruit, the fattest cows, and gives them to the Lord as an offering. And we're told in Scripture that Cain's, Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable to God. For whatever reason, it's not the first fruits. It's not the best. God doesn't accept it. Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Now Cain gets really mad. And Cain goes off to himself and here we see the way of the snake again. Cain gets really upset. He becomes, a, uh, he becomes uh, filled with a sense of anger and revenge. 
Why is my brother's sacrifice accepted and mine is not acceptable to, to God? And so he begins to scheme. He begins to plot. And then one day, he, he leads his brother Abel out to the field, and we read of the first murder in the Scriptures. He slaughters his brother Abel in cold blood. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 4. A verse before Genesis 4.10, the Lord asks Cain politely, I think, where is your brother? Knowing full well that Cain knew where his brother was. And Cain deflects, and Cain skirts the issue. He says, am I my brother's keeper? You made him. You know where he is. Maybe in a little bit of arrogance there. And then we read this in Genesis 4, 10, and 11. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Here it is. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The Hebrew here is rivers of your brother's blood is speaking to me. Now you, Cain, are under a curse and you're driven. You've taken a life. Now you're under a curse and you're driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So with this in mind, turn to Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. Here's the goodness of God. With all of this in view, from the beginning of time, from every single animal that's been sacrificed, the writer of Hebrews writes to us this morning and says this, that Jesus did things a little bit differently. And that Jesus didn't offer, himself, didn't offer the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal re- redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a, hef- of a cow sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot, purely to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then a little bit later, just three chapters later, He says this, to, the mediate, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, of a new promise, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What word did the blood of Abel speak? If the writer of Hebrews is talking about a better word, what word did the blood of Abel speak? You see, the blood of Abel spoke revenge, crying out to God, one life for one life. Vengeance 
curse for curse. The blood of Jesus, speaking a better, better word over all creation, says one life for all life. Acceptance, adoption, forgiveness, pardon, remission, protection, blessing, compassion, and redemption. No one is alive this morning. Is anyone alive this morning? The blood of Christ over your life and my life speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Man, you guys are making me work hard today. Gosh, this is such good news. This is such good news. The blood, it's all in the blood. Romans 5, 9, we're justified by his blood. We have redemption through his blood. So what's the gospel? The gospel is that we can be saved from sin through the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus. And what does this mean? What does this mean for you, believer, who already believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. What does this mean for you? By the blood and through the sacrifice of Jesus. It means that when Jesus was hung on the cross, that there was a sign above his head. And that, said, that sign said, Jesus, King of the Jews. But did you know there was another sign that was placed above the head of Jesus? And that sign reads, Every single thing that the enemy could accuse you of being. That sign reads, paid for in full by the blood of Jesus. That sign reads, pornographer. That sign reads, liar. That sign reads, thief. That sign reads, adulterer. All paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That sign reads, alcoholic. That sign reads, addict. That sign reads, oppressed. That sign reads, um, depressed. That sign reads, everything that the enemy could ever throw at you about every sin you've ever committed. And you can stand in the blood of Jesus at the cross and you can say, yep, you're right. You're right. You're right, enemy. But that's not who I am anymore because of the blood of Christ. That's not who I've become. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that lives, but He that lives within me. For greater is He who is in me than He who is in the world. So all of those titles that are nailed above the head of Christ and the crown of thorns that was shoved into his head can no longer apply to you. All that's applied to you is the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of your heart so that the angel of death will pass over. That's who you are in Christ. You're a new creation. You're no longer those things. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You belong. You're cherished. You're loved. You're the apple of his eye. You're the love of his desire. You're the only thing that he's focused on. His love is that deep and that lavish and that intense. That's who you are. I'm fire. So how do we receive this? Well, the Jews also understood back in the day 
through the Day of Atonement, that it was through repentance. It was through repentance. Repentance is the vehicle, really quickly as we close, as we read in 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sin, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another way to say this, this is the Evan paraphrase, is that the gates of repentance are always open. And the Jews understood that to repent means to return home. And the sacrifice that was acceptable to God was that of a broken heart. We read in Psalm 59, David presented himself uh, repenting with a broken and contrite heart. And it's through the broken heart of Jesus he offers himself. He becomes the shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. Another way to say this is that your repentance triggers heaven's rejoicing. Your repentance triggers heaven's rejoicing. That's why being saved from is a broken-hearted, joyous reality. That's why Jesus could make the sacrifice for you and for me. That's why we sing the words of the old hymn. It's joy and sorrow flowing, mingled down. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In America, the church has become content. God love her, the bride. Ugh, but she has become content with preaching faith without repentance. And you can't have one without the other. Repentance must be preached to turn. There, there must be a turn in order to receive the gift of faith through the gift of Jesus at the cross. That doesn't mean that we're earning, do you see? Grace is still free. It costs him everything. It's still a gift to us, but there must be a turning, and even that is put there by the Spirit of God. But there must be repentance first. You can be saved from something. You can have salvation. But if you're holding on to unforgiveness, addictions, idols that can't save you. you. You might find salvation, but you won't find the abundant life that is in Jesus. We have to turn from and turn to. Turn from, turn to. Turn from, turn to. And I agree with you. I'm right there with you. It, I, I love turning to because he's a huge God. But if in our turning to this great big God, we forget what he saved us from, does that even matter is my question. We have to preach the message of repentance. We have to live lives of repentance and know that it's God, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Repentance.